Hi, everybody. This is Norman with our daily podcast, We Go For It, sharing stories and observations for the boldly aspiring. Excuse me. This is our second season. I'm very happy to welcome you all to season two, sharing stories and observations for the boldly aspiring underdogs. Episode one, what is an underdog? I think we're all familiar with the term. We have heard it used in movies and sports especially. But what do we really mean when we talk about the underdog? And are we underdogs? Should we be underdogs? And when we find ourselves in that type of situation, what is the best way to handle it? Well, I believe that there are three at least three general views of ourself that we need to take into consideration when we grapple with this term underdog. The first thing is, is how we see ourselves, how we see ourselves and our relationship to what we are aspiring to, to what we're going for. The second one is how others see us and our relationship to what we are aspiring to. And the third one is how we think others see us and our relationship to what we are aspiring to. So there are three general self-views, and we're going to look at these carefully in a few minutes. But before we do, I'd like to digress a bit and talk about one of our And what I feel is one of our greatest distinguishers of level of freedom. And that's the difference between competing and creating. You see, the way I see it, and maybe you will disagree or or not, or maybe you'll be able to add more depth and color to what I'm saying. Competing is actually a description It is actually an external description of a relationship between two or more entities, be they personal or organizational. It's merely a description of an interaction. It's a description of the contest, whatever that might be. Now, when we start to think of ourselves as competing... And we, and we think we are, we, when we are becoming the process of competing, I find it to be a risky proposition. And we run the risk of several things. We run the risk of playing copycat because we're looking at what the others are doing and we are competing. So we run the risk of playing copycat. We run the risk of reacting rather than originating or initiating. And of course, if we're constantly reacting, there's a good chance that we're a little bit behind the curve, okay? Now, that might not be the case all the time. And I, and I would definitely welcome people to not, not so much disagree, but as I said before, add a little bit of depth to that and, and go into some of those exceptions where maybe being second is not such a bad thing. And there's a whole uh, library of material on that. Another of the risks, though, in general, is we might be atrophying our sense of curiosity and risk-taking. If we're constantly 
competing and looking at what the others are doing. Well, we're not exercising, and I use that word deliberately, we're not exercising our our curiosity. We're not exercising our natural risk-taking abilities. We're not. We're copycatting. We're looking at what others are doing. And so, you know, any like any muscle, if you don't use it, it will atrophy. If you don't use particular mental skills, they will atrophy. They will not be as sharp. And it's not because you don't have them. It's because we didn't practice them. Here's another one. Another possible downside to the dilemma of seeing ourselves as competing. We allow the continued existence of persistent and detrimental blind spots. Because we're copying, we're not really looking at ourselves as creators, and so we will habitually ignore certain blind spots. I love blind spots because we all have them, and the the best way to identify blind spots and to try and mitigate their effects or eliminate them completely is through growth, curiosity, creation. Another possible downside is you never find your own unique voice and strengths. And that's where the heart of our true value-added proposal may reside. When we are competing, when we're when we're just looking at what others are doing and we're trying to maybe tweak it or improve it a little bit or maybe get it out a little bit faster, well, we're, we're, we're copying. We're, we're constantly subject to what's happening outside. And so we run the risk of ignoring our own voice, our own unique voice and some of our strengths. Another one that I find very serious, is misusing the law of relativity to your own detriment. And too many of us do it way too often, which means that we are comparing things that maybe we don't do that well with things that others are doing well. And in that case, we are constantly undermining ourselves. I'm not saying saying to put on some rose-colored glasses and ignore your shortcomings, but I am saying that If you've got shortcomings, okay, but you also need to identify your strengths and your assets. Because if you don't, all you're seeing is shortcomings and you're constantly playing catch-up. And not only that, if you are only focusing on the shortcomings because you are engaged in an inaccurate exercise of comparing, then what's going to happen is you're ignoring the very tools that might help you bridge the gap between, you know, who you're comparing yourself with. So there are things we, we need to have a broader view of ourselves. And when we compete and when we're, use, when we're misusing the law of relativity to our own detriment, we are leaving an enormous amount of our ability and our talent on the table unused. Another one that I find interesting is always being just a step too late. You are behind whomever you are, quote unquote, competing with. Just You're just a, a millisecond too late because you're constantly reacting to. So I, I believe that I love competition. I love 
the engagement. I love the the act of competing, but I don't see myself as a competitor. I see myself in a different light, and that's what we're going to look at, okay? And I find that to be super important. Let's talk about, for a minute, before we get into the second part, let's talk about levels of control. And more importantly, more importantly, the efficient use of our two non-renewable assets, energy and time. Now, people might say, yeah, yeah, energy, you can get the energy back. No, you can't. You, you, will, you will find another source of energy. You will eat your food, whatever. But you know, you know the expression, the energy that you expend going up the stairs, you won't get back going down the stairs. You simply won't. It's expended. It's gone. Same thing with time. So how are we more efficiently using our time and energy? Well, there are a few questions, a few points of view. And let's take a look at how much control and efficient use of time and energy we have. How others see us and our relationship to what we are aspiring to. There is virtually no level of control in this process. And the process of figuring this out and affecting it in any positive way, it's going to yield consistently poor results. People will form their own opinions about you. you. It will be very difficult for you to convince certain people that to see you in a certain way. They will see you as they see you. That's something that you really have very little control over. And it's an extremely inefficient use of time and energy. Let's look at the second area of control. How we think others see us and our relationship to what we are aspiring to. Well, there's very little, if any, control there, too. You might try and change your perception of what you think they are thinking about you. You could do that. You could spend your time and energy doing that. Okay, go for it. It's still going to be yielding consistently poor results. Why? Because you really don't control that. You're controlling your perception, and you're going to have to base it on something. You're still perceiving what they are perceiving about you. Very little control and an extremely inefficient use of time and energy. Here we go, number three. How we see ourselves and our relationship to what we are aspiring to. This is the single relationship that we do control. We may have to work on it from several angles and not least from the action bias, one of my favorite words, and generating self-evident proof from the attainment of numerous milestone goals, you know, but you know, also through study. But this is something that we can do, something that we can control, how we see ourselves and our relationship with our goals. And I, I find that when you when you ignore procrastination and you overcome it simply by getting out there and getting it done by by moving forward and just you know stumbling and you know making it happen i find that as you start to build your little successes as you move forward with your milestone goals that you start to build a certain i don't know how you could say it you build a different image of yourself and you start to think well wow i i, I can do this and if you're not thinking about it consciously you're becoming it unconsciously simply by the act of doing it so this is one of those things there's the action bias where you are affecting that change through your actions and then of course through study study yourself get to know yourself read good books about how about 
who we are. And I think that the more that you understand that and then you start to empirically prove it to yourself through the attainment of these milestone goals, these little goals that you've set in order to achieve the big one, you'll start to affect how you see yourself. Okay? Now, let's focus on this. How we see ourselves and our relationship to what we are aspiring to. So, you know, when we look at it from this point of view, what is it that makes us an underdog then? Well, what makes us an underdog is basically the goals you choose, plain and simple. You know, what is it about the goals? Well, we're talking about big goals, these big overarching massive goals, things that we've never achieved before. And I think that we need to identify or define our goal according to a cer to certain criteria. And I, the criteria that I have always found to be very compelling is one by a, a gentleman by the name of John Canary. Uh, he was he is a um, an educator, really interesting guy, and some great messages and lessons that he's taught. And I believe that his definition of the goal is is really clear, spot on. It works for me. Let me know what you think. You don't know how to reach a goal until you've reached it. And if you know how to reach it, then it's not a goal, it's an activity. So when you set out to reach a big goal, something you've never done before, you're going to build an airplane in your backyard using a kit. You're going to start growing wines on land that you own and you don't really know how to do it. You're armed with a book, your gumption, and your grit. So when you start to engage in certain activities or goals that you've never, things you've never done before, ah, we're looking at an uncertain future. I'm not really sure that it's going to work. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I don't know. I don't see all the steps in front of me. I'm going to have to develop some of my tools along the way. I'm going to have to get out of my comfort zone, my box, and, and, and engage people with my goal as I move forward. So, But none of it's written in stone. It's not A, B, C, D, and there you go. You don't know that. So automatically, you've become an underdog because the proverbial odds look like they're kind of against you at that point. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the underdog. You see, some of our goals may be so huge and so far from where we currently find ourselves that we think, you know, how can I ever possibly reach it? I don't know but get started, especially if it's a compelling goal. And I go back once again, and this is probably the underlying criteria for just about anything that I do, love. Are you in vibration? Are you in harmonious vibration with that which you are pursuing? Do you have to have it? Are you in earnest? And that is something that once you've honestly answered in the affirmative, then, you know, yeah, it looks difficult, but I love it. I, I, I have to have it. So see, so where your self-perception and how you see yourself and your relation to what you are aspiring to or concerned, you have just entered the realm of the underdog by going for something big that you're not sure how the heck you're going to do it. So if I may say, not in closing, not yet, but we're getting close, for the purposes of this season, of season two, 
why don't we use this more empowering, pragmatic, and I would say realistic definition of an underdog. An underdog is a creator acting to achieve an irresistibly compelling goal with little, if any, concrete idea at the outset as to how they will reach it. Think about it. I'd love to hear your feedback, get your ideas on that definition, and also share some stories. Share some, some moments in your life where you've been an underdog by choice because you've gone for something big, something you really wanted, and you weren't really sure how to do it. You stuck it out, and you made it happen. Everybody's got one of those or at least, so at least everybody I've met, they've got these stories. We're all we're, we're full of these types of stories because that's who we are. Naturally, we're risk, we're natural born risk takers, going out there and and living our legacy as underdogs. You must be an underdog at some point if you're going for big goals that you've never achieved before. Guys, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been a little bit longer this episode than usual. Just we had to kick it off well. And I want to say thank you. Uh, wherever you are around the world, whichever time zone you are, you're, you're gracing with your presence, I just wish you a great day, a great evening, and I look forward to your comments and feedback. Take care, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye.